John chapter 14, we're going to start at verse 26. So far in our study of John's gospel, we have not much up to this point learned much about the coming of the Holy Spirit or the work of the Spirit which follows Jesus' glorification. However, Jesus did tell his disciples in the 7th chapter, the 37th verse or 39th verse, that whoever believes in him, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Of course, which is speaking of the Holy Spirit's presence in the life of every believer. But could only happen after Jesus has been glorified. And obviously at this point in our study of John's Gospel, Jesus was not yet glorified. Now in our text today, as Jesus is teaching his disciples, he begins to speak of the coming of the Holy Spirit in chapters 14 through 16. One commentator said, although the Holy Spirit's activity is best demonstrated in Acts, as you go through the book of Acts, the apostles, you see the demonstration, the power of, of the Holy Spirit. As Pastor Brian is going through Acts, we see that, the work of the Holy Spirit. But perhaps no book of the Bible contains more theology of the Holy Spirit than John chapters 14 through 16. And that's what we're going to be learning about the next few times I speak. And in these next few chapters, Jesus speaks much about the arrival of His Spirit in the lives of believers. So let's read our text. John chapter 14, verses 15 through 26. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world would see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and manifest myself to him. Judas, not his carrier, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us, and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Let's pray. Father, help us to see and appreciate the awesome gift of your Holy Spirit that you have given to us 
and the work he does in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to talk a little bit about slavery. Whenever you talk about slavery, it, especially in the Western culture, it has a negative connotation. But slavery in the Bible times is a little different. <clears throat> slavery, under the law of Moses, among the Hebrews, were to be treated like someone who hired themselves out to work. In other words, they weren't to be treated like slaves, but they were to be treated as a hired servant with respect. And the person whom they hired out was not to, be, was not to treat them as slaves like when they were in Egypt. And God told them, you, you treat a slave differently. You were in Egypt at one time. You were slaves there. You know what it was to be treated uh, harshly. So you don't treat slaves harshly. Some of the reasons for slavery could have been because of poverty, because the, debts, the debt of, of a man could not meet, or by theft if he stole something because of restitution, a man could not pay, so he had to hire himself out. Those were some of the reasons why they had slavery. But a Hebrew slave could be redeemed by a relative at any time. If, if a relative of a slave had the, the means, he could redeem that slave. If not redeemed, he was set free after six years of service and was sent away with presents of cattle and fruit. So on the seventh year after service, he was automatically set free. However, a Hebrew slave could choose out of love for his master not to be free. And that was in the seventh year. And therefore could become a lifelong servant of his master. And the following custom as Deuteronomy 15, 17 tells us was observed in such a case. Then you shall take an owl and put it through his ear into the door and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave you shall do the same. In other words, a Hebrew slave was to be set free in the seventh year but sometimes they loved their master so much and the family loved them so much that they decided to stay for life. Out of gratitude and love for their master, they would agree to have a hole put in their ear which signified they belonged to that family for the rest of their lives. And they would obey their master willingly out of love for him. Every genuine believer is a slave of Christ. Every one of us who are truly and genuinely born again, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, is a slave of Christ. However, the love we have for him makes it an absolute pleasure to obey and submit to him. When we love Christ, we willingly obey Christ, and it is a telltale sign that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. The proposition I want to bring to you tonight in this text. If we love and obey the Savior, we have the promise that the Holy Spirit lives in us. Last couple of times I spoke, we looked at John chapter 14 verses 1 through 14. Today we're starting 15. In 1 to 14 we looked at 
Christ is the only way, the truth and the life. And there is no other way to God or to please God but by faith in his son. We also saw that by believing in Christ's return, we were looking for his physical return, his promises that he made to us, and knowing his father brings comfort to our troubled hearts. And today, we will look at the gift of the Holy Spirit, who produces in us a loving and obedient relationship with Christ. This is not something that's earned. This is a gift That is given to us. Christ on the cross. Has earned this for us. What did he earn? He earned salvation for us. Which includes faith. For by grace we have been saved. Through faith. And this is not of ourselves. He earned faith for us. He earned love for us. Romans 5.5. For the Holy Spirit poured out his love in our hearts. He earned obedience for us. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And the Holy Spirit, another gift. Rivers of living water will flow out of the life who believes Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit is a gift. And this is an important section of scripture that we're coming to. Because of the confusion in many churches today concerning the role of the Holy Spirit. And I think especially, I think some and especially in charismatic and Pentecostal circles, misrepresent the Holy Spirit and the focus goes off of Jesus and on the supernatural. While the other end of the spectrum, some conservatives don't speak of him nearly enough and almost deny the power which can lead to legalism. And right off the bat, I will tell you that I believe, and we believe here at Sonship, that the Holy Spirit is as active and powerful as in the first century. And I'm not saying that every gift of the Holy Spirit that was operative in the first century is still the norm in this century, but I am saying he's just as powerfully at work in the church today as when he first fell at Pentecost. And I think we need to see what the scripture teaches about the Holy Spirit and get a right perspective on the third person of the Blessed Trinity. So let's do a quick theological study, I think, to preface chapters 14, 15, and 16. Who is the Holy Spirit? And I say a quick theological study because it would take a very long time to do an exhaustive study on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. First, the Holy Spirit is Almighty God, as much as God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. He is co-equal, co-eternal with the Father and Son. The Holy Spirit is not a force, nor is He an it. If you ever refer to the Holy Spirit as an it, remove that, erase that from your vocabulary. He's not an it. He's not a force, he's a person. He's the third person of the triune Godhead. However, there is only one God, Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We don't serve three gods, we serve one God existing in three persons. And it is sometimes in, in our finite minds, we cannot fully understand 
that concept on this side of heaven. But the Bible teaches it, so we believe it. One God existing in three persons. The Holy Spirit, He is God. He is eternal. He's omnipresent, meaning He's everywhere. He's in China. He's in the United States. He's in India. He's in the Middle East. He's in Australia, simultaneously, all at the same time. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows everything, all at once. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's sovereign. And He is holy. He is holy. The sixth chapter of Isaiah, the angels cried out, what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. He possesses all the divine attributes of God. He also has a personality. He loves. He grieves. He knows. He feels. He wills. Lastly, in this brief, incomplete study of the Holy Spirit, he has a distinct role. Even though the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal in nature, they are distinct in roles. I have time for one example of their distinct roles. Who elects and wills sinners for salvation? The Father. Who accomplishes the work of redemption for lost sinners? The Son, Jesus Christ. And who applies the work of the Son? The Holy Spirit. He's the one who regenerates our heart. He's the one who makes us born again. He's the one who makes us aware of our sin and points us to Christ. And that's a quick overview of the Holy Spirit, which will give us some foundation for our next, or for our text in the next few chapters of John. And there's three points I want to bring out in this text. The first one is the Holy Spirit is given to us who love and obey Christ. The second point is the Holy Spirit is given to us to reveal the presence of the Father and the Son. And the third point is the Holy Spirit is giving to us to reveal truth. We're going to only cover one point today because of the large content. Point one, the Holy Spirit is given to us who love and obey Christ. Let's look at verses 15 through 17. If you love me, Jesus said, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. If, if you love me. The condition is, if. If is a conjunction. And an adverbial condition. The condition is, if we love Jesus, then we will keep his commandments. The implication is, if we don't love him, we will not keep his commandments. What are his commandments? First, we must notice that keeping his commandments is not the same thing as loving Jesus. Loving Jesus will result or give rise to keeping his commands. Like the slave in ancient Israel who loved his master and was willing with joy and gladness to obey him as long as he lived. Dr. John Piper translates it like this. If you love me, the result will be that you will keep my commandments. 
And that puts it in the right perspective. Obedience is the evidence of true conversion. What are Christ's commands that we are obeying out of love for him? His commands, I think, are more than obeying a set of ethical precepts or rules of morality. It's not just taking the Ten Commandments and trying to obey them. I think his commands are all that Jesus taught. When he said, love one another, we lovingly love one another. When he said, follow me, we forsake all and follow him. When he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at end, we forsake sin and turn from sin. When he said, make disciples, be the light of the world, the salt of the earth, abide in me, etc., we obey lovingly. We obey everything Jesus commanded us. If we truly treasure Christ, we will obey with joy. By the way, biblical love is always linked to truth. You can't have biblical love separated from truth. If you get a chance, read the second, second epistle of John. 1 John 5.3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. This is the love of God. What? That we keep His commandments. Once again, genuine love and obedience for Christ is the fruit of our salvation. So first, the motive. Love. Then, the action. Obey. When I'm driving and I see a policeman, I make sure I'm obeying the traffic laws as well as you do also, right? I'm not obeying the law because I love the law and I love the policeman who rightly enforces the law. My motive is I do it because I don't want to get a ticket. It's as simple as that. It's not out of love, but out of obligation that I obey. And as the Christian... God's law says, thou shall not commit adultery. I don't commit adultery out of duty, but my motive is love for God and my wife. Obedience without love is external religion. Obedience out of a genuine love for God is the result of being born again. Back to our text, Jesus makes a promise. <clears throat> Verse 16. And I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. Christ's request to the Father for his disciples is the Holy Spirit. Who is the promise for the Holy Spirit for? Those who love and obey Jesus. If you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And when Jesus asks the Father for anything, what happens? The Father grants that request. It goes without say. When Jesus prayed to his Father right before he was to raise Lazarus back to life, he said in John chapter 11, verses 41 and 42, he said, Father, I thank you that you always, or you have heard me. I knew that you, what? Always hear me. By the way, Jesus still asks the Father on our behalf because he sits at the right hand of his Father as our great high priest ever interceding for us. When Jesus 
asks the Father on your behalf, and my behalf, and the church's behalf, guess what? It's done. And Jesus asked the Father to send another helper. His disciples were troubled at the thought that he was leaving them at this point. This is the point that they're in the upper room. They're troubled. Christ was with them almost three and a half years. They're troubled at the core of their hearts. And Jesus says, I'm going to send you another helper. And he gives them the deepest assurance that he will not leave them, but will come to them by way of the Holy Spirit. But what does it mean the Father will send another helper? First, what does helper mean? The Greek word that translates as helper is parakletos, which is a title for the Holy Spirit. Many of you recognize the English term paraclete. The word is translated in various ways in different Bible versions. The King James translates it comforter. For those of you who are the only King James people, you know the word is comforter, which can be misleading. Because although the Spirit does comfort us in times of sadness, it's probably better translated strengthen. Dr. Arsley Sproul says, thus a comforter was someone who came to strengthen you. It wasn't the one who came to wipe your tears after the battle. It was the one who came to give you strength for the battle. The NIV translates it counselor, which can also be misleading. When we hear counselor, we tend to to think of a high school counselor or some pop psychology, as if the Holy Spirit is sitting in a chair and we're laying on a couch and he's with his pen and pencil and saying, well, how long has this been happening to you? You know, that's really not a right translation. Probably the better translation for parakletos was more like advocate, a legal counselor in a courtroom, someone who will defend your case in a trial, a defense attorney, someone who comes alongside of you, Now, my wife, Kim, before she retired, was a paralegal. She came alongside of a lawyer she worked for and would perform specifically delegated legal work for which a lawyer is responsible. She took on the responsibility for the lawyer. She did the work of a lawyer without being a lawyer. Well, the Holy Spirit comes alongside of believers. If you're a believer, he comes alongside of you to help you, to exhort you, to to strengthen you. He takes on the responsibility for us. But the Holy Spirit is not going to just walk beside us and help us as needed. No, the Holy Spirit, the advocate, the helper, the strengthener, the intercessor, actually lives inside of us. He lives inside of you. One commentator said, the Holy Spirit does not work instead of us or in spite of us, but in us and through us. Another word we need to look at is another. What did Jesus mean when he said, I'm sending you another helper? The two Greek words that translate another, alas and heretos, or heteros. Alas means another of the same kind. Heteros also means another but of a different kind. In other words, if I'm eating a golden delicious apple and give each of you a golden delicious apple, 
I'm eating an apple and so are you. And you're eating an apple of the same kind. That's the Greek word, alas. Another of the same kind. However, if I'm eating a golden delicious apple and I give you, each of you, a Macintosh apple, then you would have an apple but of a different kind. You're eating an apple but a different kind of apple. That's what the Greek heteros means. Another of a different kind. Well, the Greek word here in John 14, 16 is alos. Another of the same kind. God the Father was sending the helper just like Jesus. Jesus was reassuring his disciples that when he physically left them, the helper the Father would send would be just like Jesus. Another helper because Jesus is also a helper. He's also called an advocate. John calls Jesus an advocate in his first epistle. John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you do not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have what? An advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So Jesus is also an advocate. He's the original advocate. The Holy Spirit would replace the original advocate. And that's Jesus. The Holy Spirit is going to replace Jesus. The Holy Spirit in every believer's heart is just as if Jesus himself resided in them. So Jesus, in a sense, was getting ready to pass the baton of leadership of the church over to the Holy Spirit. I frequently hear people say, and I'm sure you have too, and I'm not criticizing it, but we hear people frequently say, I wish I lived when Jesus lived. Imagine being in his presence. I I wouldn't have the worries, the fears, the anxieties I have now. And we all tend to think it would be so much better if we could have the physical Jesus walking with us. Right? Let's be honest. Don't be thinking about that Macintosh apple. Okay? (laughs) Let's be thinking about this. But... But our text today tells us that the helper, the Holy Spirit, is the same as having the Jesus' physical presence, but better. Better. First off, if Jesus was still physically present with us on earth, there would be mobs of people trying to get at him. I mean, you'd never be able to get to him. It would be impossible to speak with him because of his physical limitations. But now that he sent his Holy Spirit, we have 24-7 access to him by the Spirit. By his Spirit. I could wake up in the middle of the night and speak to God because of his Holy Spirit in my heart. We have it better than Abraham. We have it better than Isaac and Jacob. We have it better than Moses. We have it better than John the Baptist. Remember what he told John the Baptist? The least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. And we have it even better than the apostles before Pentecost, of course. Before Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament saints. Nobody's denying that. But not in a way that the New Testament believers have it. In an unprecedented way. He permanently lives in the believer. And we now experience a fullness that is norm for all Christians. We have the same 
resurrection power in us that raised Christ from the dead. That's the Holy Spirit. We have Christ, our hope of glory, in us forever. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. We have instantaneous access to God. We don't have to wait for the high priest to enter the Holy of Holies in the temple once a year on the Day of Atonement to atone for the sins of the people with the blood of bulls and goats. We now have immediate access to God's most holy throne room. You a Christian today? You have access like that. As one commentator said, the Holy Spirit adequately takes the place of the Lord Jesus, the original helper, to empower his work. And we need to stop wishing we could have been there when Jesus walked the earth. His presence now dwells in you, not beside you in physical form. If we had a fever and needed to take aspirin, what would be better? Having the bottle of aspirin next to you on your night table? Or taking two out of the bottle and putting it inside of you where it could now release its potency and bring your fever down? Maybe it's a poor analogy, but you get the point. Jesus inside of me, through the Holy Spirit, is much better than Jesus next to me. Of course, the Spirit of God is everywhere. He's not only inside of us, He's everywhere. Because God is omnipresent. He's beside you, He's over you, He's under you, He's in the heavens, He's he's under the earth, He's everywhere. David said in Psalm 139, verses 7 to 10, He said, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I free from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. He's everywhere. But he doesn't reside in every human being. Rivers of living water only flow out of the believer's heart. Only those who love and are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. He lives and has his home in every believer. The Holy Spirit, the helper, is so much the same as Jesus that Paul said in Romans 8, 9, he called the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ. So having the helper reside in you is the same as having Jesus reside in you. And that's why we can say, Jesus is in my heart. And he will be there forever. Jesus is also called, or Jesus also called the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth. Verses 16 and the first half of 17 And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of Truth. One of the functions <clears throat> one of the functions of the Holy Spirit is to reveal truth. John fifteen twenty six. But when the helper comes, whom I will send from you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. In John sixteen thirteen, when the Spirit of Truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will de- declare to you the things that are to come. One of the functions of the Holy Spirit in revealing truth was particularly and exclusively for the apostles in revealing the inspired truth of the New Testament. Some of them were going to pen the New Testament. 
They were going to complete the Bible. Listen to verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. I believe the immediate application to verse to this verse is for the apostles alone. For they were going to complete the Bible. Because none of us are going to remember everything that Jesus said. Just as the Holy Spirit of truth revealed the old, in the Old Testament by revealing truth to Moses and the prophets, he would do the same to the New Testament writers. Second Peter, first chapter, 20 to the 21st verse, Peter said, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke, get this, from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit brought to their remembrance all that he said. So they were able to complete the New Testament canon. And the next time I speak, the second part, we will unpack this a little more. But the Holy Spirit does impart truth about Jesus to those who love and obey Christ. Every believer. Every believer, every one of us who believe, God, the Holy Spirit, imparts truth to us. If you remember, Jesus said in John chapter 14, 6, that he was the way, what? And the truth and the life. Without truth, which is found in the person of Jesus Christ and revealed to our hearts and minds by the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, we would live in falsehood. We would never be justified, we would never be sanctified, or ever be glorified. We would never worship properly. Those who worship God must, we worship, those who worship the Father must worship in spirit and in truth. We would never be free. The truth shall set you free. We can never love properly. Godly love is always linked to truth. Only Christians know that kind of truth that saves. It's the truth of the gospel that saves. In John's prologue, in the first chapter, he tells us that Jesus came into the world and was full of what? Grace and truth. Just as Jesus produced evidence and witness for the truth about God, the Spirit of God would continue the truth of God where Jesus left off. Dr. Gary Berg says he, meaning the Holy Spirit, communicates the truth about God, which is the essence of God's work in Christ. Moreover, we know that Jesus is the truth, and inasmuch as the Spirit duplicates and sustains Jesus' work, he will continue to defend the truth of Jesus. The world doesn't know that kind of truth. They cannot receive him. Why? Well, the second half of or the second part of verse 17. Because it neither sees him nor knows him. What does it mean the world does not see him? Who can see the Holy Spirit? He's invisible. What does it mean the world cannot see, see him? I think Dr. Leon Morris clarifies that. He says, see, sees, is equivalent to perceives. The world is quite unaware of the Spirit's activities. Therefore, it does not know Him. It enters into no personal relations with Him. So it makes perfect sense that if the world failed to recognize and receive Christ, it would fail to recognize the work of the Holy Spirit. 
John, the first chapter, verses 10 and 11. Jesus said, he was in the world, or John says, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. God created the world, and yet people he created did not recognize him. Even the people who were chosen by God did not recognize him. If a person rejects Jesus, they obviously don't have the spirit dwelling in their hearts. Paul states that clearly in 1 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 14. He says, and this should take a load off your mind when you're sharing Christ with people. It's God's responsibility to open the hearts of people. He says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Unless a person receives Christ as Lord and Savior, he does not have the Holy Spirit and can't even begin to understand spiritual things. Only the saved spirit-possessed person can understand and confess Christ and submit to his lordship. 1 Corinthians 12.3 Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. If a person genuinely has the Holy Spirit, that person will never mock the name of Jesus and will truly be under his lordship. Contrary, the world mocks Christ and does not confess nor submit to his lordship because it neither sees him nor knows him. Christians are not of this world any more than a rock is not part of the human race. By the way, when we speak of the world, we speak of the evil system controlled by Satan that does not perceive the things of God. That's what, what he's talking about here when he talks about wor- a world. In other words, it refers to the human environment that is in rebellion against God. The world, if you haven't noticed, is in rebellion against God. It's the Antichrist. And whoever doesn't belong to Christ belongs to this evil system. Before I was born again, I belonged to this world. I was part of this evil system, and so were you. Christians are no longer part of this world. We are no longer part of this evil system. Jesus said in John 17 when he was praying his high priestly prayer to his father, he said, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Believers are not of this world because we know him. We actually know God. Third part of verse 17. He says, you know him for he dwells with you and will be with you. Contrary to the world of unbelievers, not knowing or perceiving the Holy Spirit, the believers of Christ do know and understand the person and work of the Holy Spirit because he dwells with us, which is a present reality, and will be with us, which is a future certainty. The reason we know him is because the spirit of truth resides in us. To know him does not mean an intellectual knowledge but an actual experiential knowledge. A knowledge that comes from the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Paul told the Corinthian church. 
1 Corinthians, the second chapter, verses 9 and 10. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. And listen to the next part of this verse. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Not so with the world. God has not revealed these things to them. He only revealed them to his own. My wife and I recently visited a couple who just had their first child. And my wife brought them a ba- uh, tray of baked ziti to help the poor husband so he didn't starve while the wife took care of the newborn. And after we spoke a while, I asked them if they would mind if we prayed with them. And they graciously accepted the offer and they joined hands and we prayed and then we left. And I've shared Christ with them a number of times and they've always respected and listened and never disputed me on what I told them. But to my knowledge to this day, they they don't know the Savior. I can't make them understand spiritual truth. I can't. You can't. I can tell them spiritual truth and pray that the Holy Spirit opens their hearts, but I can't make them understand understand no matter how persuasive I can be. Only the Holy Spirit can reveal His Word to them. The world itself cannot understand God. Before God regenerated me, before I was born again, I was in the world that did not understand the spiritual things. I didn't understand spiritual truth. But when he opened my heart, I began to understand the things of God. I began to perceive. I would read the Bible and it it was like the words of the page would jump off into my heart. The word truly became living and powerful, sharpened in any two-edged sword. The Spirit of God, the helper, dwells with the believer forever and he reveals truth to us. I want to conclude with a story from Voice of the Martyr magazine, which clearly illustrates the Holy Spirit's, the Holy Spirit lives in those who love and obey the Savior. I'm going to ask Lewis to come up. It's quite lengthy, and he'll do a better job of reading it than me. Um, And this, I think, will drive home the point. Lewis? A pastor from an Islamic country in the Middle East recently shared the story of one of his church members, Shani, who was filled with fear. Shani's husband was the leader of a house church until one day he simply disappeared. For three months, Shani had no idea where he was. The authorities who had taken him had filed no charges against him, and he wasn't allowed to see a lawyer or his family. In fact, the authorities wouldn't even admit they were, lo- they were holding him. Shani was left alone, worrying about her husband and about herself. She knew her husband was strong and that his faith would endure even if he was tortured. He would never give up the names of other Christians or details about their secret gospel work. But Shani was afraid she wasn't that strong. Dear God, Shani prayed one night, please don't allow them to find me. I can't handle torture. I cannot handle a jail cell. You said you wouldn't give us more than we can handle, so please make them not come and arrest me. I'm not strong like my husband. I can't handle torture. If they torture me, I'll probably give up the names of every single Christian. I might even deny my faith completely. She prayed that prayer, then went to sleep. 
Shani was awakened at 6 a.m. the next morning by someone banging on her door. When she looked out uh, the window, she saw the two police cars in front of her home. They saw her looking out of the window and yelled, Are you going to come down here, or do you want us to come up and get you? Wait, she yelled back. I'll come down. But as Shani was getting ready to open the door for the police, she was fighting with God. God, I told you I can't handle arrest and torture, she prayed. And this is what happens? Whatever happens now, God, it's your fault. The police took Shani to the local jail, which was filthy and smelled like a sewer. She had grown up in a wealthy family and had never been in a place like this. I have to sleep there, she exclaimed. In the middle of the night, the guards pulled her out of her cell and took her to an interrogation room. The interrogator across the table from her looked very angry. Why did you evangelize, he demanded. Why do you talk about Jesus to Muslims? What do you want from these people, you and your husband? Don't you know that it's illegal here? You're not permitted to evangelize. The only thing she could think to say was, Dear God, Lord. Then she suddenly felt God's presence and peace. Shani looked up at the interrogator. You know what, she said? I have a right to evangelize, and I'm happy that I'm evangelizing. We're supposed to evangelize. This is a commandment from Jesus Christ. Everyone needs to hear this good news. You need to hear this good news too. God sent me here to tell you about Jesus. You are a poor man. I feel bad for you. You don't have peace. You don't have joy. You don't have hope. You don't even know why you are alive. The only way to the truth is Jesus Christ. You are an interrogator, but one day you're going to stand before the ultimate judge, Jesus Christ, and he is going to examine you. Without him, there is no hope for you. And Jesus is going to ask you, why did you do this to my servants? The interrogator was shocked by her bold words. Okay, I see. He replied, I know exactly who you are now. Now your punishment has just increased. You are really going to get it now. Go back to your cell and I'll deal with you tomorrow. As Shanti was was escorted back to her filthy cell, she prayed, Oh Lord, what did I do? How could I have been so stupid? Why did I even say all of that stuff? After further thought, she decided she would apologize to the interrogator and take it all back. She decided she would say whatever he wanted her to say. The following night, the guards again dragged her out of her cell and into the interrogation room. Despite her plan, she again felt the Holy Spirit's guidance and began to share the gospel with her interrogator. The third night, it happened again. Each night, Shanti entered the interrogation room with the intent of apologizing to the interrogator, and each night she instead boldly proclaimed the gospel. After the third interrogation, Shanti went back to her cell, hoping to give her mind a rest and fall asleep, despite the stench. She hadn't slept since her arrest, and she was exhausted. In the middle of the night, however, she heard a knock at her door. To her surprise, it wasn't a guard. It was the interrogator. Let me come in, he said. Shani was terrified. Was he coming to beat her or even kill her because of her disrespect towards him? Don't worry, the interrogator said calmly. I will not harm you. I want to ask you for a favor. Would you pray for me tonight? The interrogator entered Shani's cell with tears in his eyes. Did you know that you are an angel of God, he asked. Did you know that God sent you here at this particular time in my life? The past three days I've been going through hell. How did you know that my life is so crazy, so messed up? I tried everything in my religion, and I couldn't ever seem to be happy. 
I learned today that the only Savior is Jesus Christ. When you weren't talking in the interrogation room, that wasn't really you. I saw myself in God's presence. Please help me to be saved. The interrogator stayed in Shawnee's jail cell for three hours, and before he left, he placed his trust in Christ. He then ordered the release of both Shawnee and her husband on the secret condition that they agree to meet privately to disciple him. And he even gave them advice on how they could evangelize more safely. Maybe you have prayed prayers like Shawnee's. Lord, I can't handle cancer. Lord, I can't work for this difficult boss for one more day. God, I can't handle a rebellious teenager. Lord, I can't endure the betrayal of my unfaithful spouse or the possibility of parenting alone. Shawnee told God that she couldn't handle arrest, that she probably would give up the names of every Christian she knew of tortured, and that she might even deny her faith. And yet three times the seemingly timid, fearful woman boldly shared the gospel with her interrogator and everyone else in the room. A frightened woman who thought she might deny her faith ended up leading an enemy of the gospel into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's how powerful the Holy Spirit is in anyone's life. Excuse me. Never underestimate the power of Christ in your life through the work of the Holy Spirit. Never. And I I want this to be an encouragement to you, as it was to me. There is nothing too difficult for God to do in and through our lives. When we love and obey the Savior, we have the promise of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And He can do anything that He wants in and through us. Having the Holy Spirit does not mean we will never struggle. It means like Shani, we will ultimately obey Christ out of love. Do you and I want to know if the Holy Spirit dwells in us? Let's ask ourselves this simple question. Do I obey Jesus out of love for him? If you answered yes, the Holy Spirit lives in you. If you answered, if you're honest and answered no, then pray and ask God to forgive you and trust in the finished work of Christ, his death and his resurrection. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If Romans 10.9 is a reality, reality to you, then the Holy Spirit now lives in you, and out of genuine love for your Savior, you will obey him. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise and thanks, God, for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Help us never to take advantage of that gift, God, to never take it for granted, and to believe that you live in our hearts now. Help us to know we have the power to do whatever you ask. In Jesus' name, amen.